Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 113, Imagining a Real Life, an interview with Jane Kirkpatrick, coming to you on Thursday, November 29th, 2018. This was such an interesting interview. Jane has a different take than what I'm used to on historical fiction. She takes an interesting real-life historical figure that she just finds so fascinating that she needs to know more and more and more about him. And she does absurd amounts of research, like so much research. She was talking about things I didn't even know were historical documents. It was really interesting listening to her. She finds out everything she can, and then... She crafts a story that's sort of filling in the blanks of what she imagines that person was thinking and feeling during this time of whatever was going on during their story. So she's got this interesting book called Everything She Didn't Say that just came out in September. And she talks us about just talks to us about the real life person and, you know, doing the research and looking for family members to talk to. And it's so interesting. So if you're at all interested in history, genealogy, researching your books, this is a really great great interview. And she's also got some great tips near the end for writers on just uh, keep on going uh, types of things, like how to keep on going the next day and the next day. So, and we share a couple of tips together. It's a really fun interview and I think you're going to love it. So tune in, keep listening, and we'll talk to you later. Today's guest is Jane Kirkpatrick. Jane is the New York Times and CBA best-selling and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including All She Left Behind, A Light in the Wilderness, The Memory Weaver, This Road We Traveled, and A Sweetness to the Soul, which won the prestigious Wrangler Award from the Western Heritage Center. Her works have won the Willa Literary Award, USA Best Books, the Carroll Award for Historical Fiction, and the 2016 Will Rogers Medallion Award. Jane lives in Central Oregon with her husband, Jerry. Welcome, Jane. Hi, Kitty. Thanks for having me come. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. It's funny. I've got a lot of Oregonians, or- Oregonians on the show lately. Oregonians. That's how it starts good. Oregonians. There we go. Well, you know what? People from cool. Oregon are, are great people, so I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So um, this is really interesting. The way that you do historical fiction is unlike uh, anybody else that I've interviewed. So I'm super excited to talk about it from a little bit different perspective. Now, um, your new book is Everything She Didn't Say, right? Can I hold it up? I'm holding it up. There it is. Oh, the there bright, you go. Red, bright red dress. Yeah. Beautiful. If you're watching on YouTube, it's a lovely, lovely cover. And so this is about a real-life historical figure, right? Right. Most of my um, novels have been about actual people. Some of them are what I call, well, you know, better known, um, like Dorothea Dix, for example, who was a mental health reformer. But most of them are just kind of lesser known, um, ordinary people who within their community and, and I thought lived really extraordinary lives and I didn't want their stories to be lost. So I started... Wow. I actually wanted to write a biography of, of the first one, the first novel, um, Sweetness to the Soul. I wanted to write this woman's biography because I thought she was so interesting. And um, I, I just couldn't find out enough about her. I could find out things about her husband, her brother, her father. And if they'd <laughs> had sons, I'm sure would have found out things about him too. But um, so that's when, you know, my husband said, well, if you think it's a great story, you should just write it down and, you know, make it fiction. And like, he said, if people don't like it, they can, they can write their own version. Like, <laughs> okay. Maybe I could do that. So that, that's what took me into that loop of um, fiction over biography. Yeah. Wow. Now in, in this book, uh, everything she didn't say, your character, uh, Carrie, her writing voice sounds very much, or the way that you're writing um, her as a first-person character's story, see if I can say that right, yeah. <laughs> uh, sounds yeah. very much like you would expect a writing voice to sound from the early 1900s. Was that on purpose? Like, did you have to work for it? Or is that a little bit also of your writing voice? 
Well, it's um, it was, this, was a, this was a challenge in some ways once I decided to write it this way because she had written a memoir um, that came out in 1911, but it was based on activities that she and her husband did promoting the railroad um, across the West um, in the 1870s and 80s. So she was writing about and, and probably taking notes during the 1870s and 80s. But the book came out in 1911, um, and it was well well received great had it actually went into a second printing in 1914 Um, so i actually had her i had her words i had her voice in these two volumes um, of work that she had done and um and so when i decided that i wanted to i wanted to write what she didn't say because it seemed to me it was sort of like a documentary it wasn't really a memoir even though that's how it was that's what she said it was and a memoir is, in my estimation, the memoir that I read, um, we get we get the person's story, but we also get epiphanies, you know, like, and this is what I learned from that, you know, those so that the rest of us don't have to go through those things, um, the little bits of wisdom. And and they weren't there. I mean, I it was incredibly detailed about what she did and when they did it and who they did it with. So lots of names, lots of place names, um, but almost nothing about how she felt about what had happened or, um, or what, you know, I guess feeling is a big part about fiction, you know, sort of what she felt or why, what was her motivation to do some of these things. So there's none of that. Um, so in writing, to fill in the blank sort of uh, with her story, I, I had to um, mimic, I felt like mimic her writing style to some extent because each chapter has a very short paragraph of from the original memoir that she wrote. And so I had to sort of grasp that and at the same time, um, you know, give what I hoped was a unique perspective of the things she hadn't shared and, yeah. and maybe why she hadn't shared those things. So that was the challenge. So I, I know it, um, last week someone who had read the book said, to me had a couple of sentences written down and said, now are these your words or are these Carrie's words? <laughs> and I say, well, they're all my words, except for that little section at the end of each chapter. Um, but, but I'm saying that as though that's Carrie, you know, and I, cause I think those are things that she would have thought. So yeah. um, she was, it was interesting because at the time the reviews for that book were, um, were that she sounded very much like uh, Mark Twain, that oh. she was sort of a female perspective on, um, you know, kind of looking at the world, although she said nothing, nothing particularly controversial, which Mark Twain, of course, was known for. But, but it was that kind of um, folksy, engaging, um, and yet at the same time, a real literary underbase, because she was uh, one of the first women to graduate from the University of Michigan. So she was well-educated, and, and so it was just that kind of combination of, um, I think, her connection with people was very strong and maybe better than with her, her husband's connection. So that kind of folksy quality, you know, underpinned with um, a, a great literary tradition and, um, and a sense of humor. And, and she says, I want to stay in my happy lane. She did not want to have that book be a, you know, a you know, a complaining, you know, and if they'd only done this, our life would have been better. Nothing like that. Um, yeah. So it was this combination of um, not betraying that part of her um, by my filling in the blanks for her or saying what she didn't say, but at the yeah. same time trying to be insightful about what, what she had chosen not to tell us. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that is so interesting. Now, <clears throat> the other thing that I found really fascinating was uh, in your press release, you mentioned probably a dozen sources that you used, including, and this made me laugh out loud, irrigation reports. <laughs> yes, I know. I go to a lot of strange places. <laughs> um, but yeah, because they, one of the things they did as a couple is start towns in the West, uh, like out of the desert. And this happened to be the desert of Idaho, Southern Idaho. And, um, and, and he would write articles and write books, l- sort of luring people West, you know, writing promotional material about how beautiful the West was. And it is. And 
in many places it's desert and it needs water. So um, when people got there, there wasn't any water. So he, then he got involved in developing um, an irrigation company. And, um, and so then I found, I thought, well, I want to know what was going on. You know, what, what was that kind of trial? Because she doesn't mention that at all. But he was involved in this irrigation company and they had problems. And the badgers would, you know, dig holes and there'd be floods and um, and so she didn't, you know, she didn't want to talk about that stuff too much, um, which is understandable because it didn't make her husband look very good. Um, but it was also part of the strain, I think, on her wanting people to, um, to love the West as she was coming to love the West and at the same time being honest about what they were getting into. Um, that's why the epigram that I chose was from um, Emily Dickinson that says, tell all the truth but tell it slant. And so that's what I think she was doing. She was telling the truth, but she was putting a little slant on it. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So irrigation companies, um, in one of the books that I wrote, I actually um, had copies of the cut beef records. So if you think that irrigation is odd. <laughs> so, but during the uh, reservation, during the reservation period, which is 1855, when the big treaties were signed, um, after that, the Indian people um, could only hunt on the on the reserves that they had, and um, and sometimes there wouldn't be enough animals, and so then the military would provide beef for them, but they didn't want the beef. Um, they didn't want people getting the beef who weren't entitled to it, uh. so to speak. So they um, formed kind of a genealogy of families, and these were called the cut beef records. So you. Uh. Each family was listed, you know, who was grandma, grandpa, you know, mom, dad, all the kids and stuff. Um, and then that was recorded that they got the beef that that particular time. But those records were kept. And so they can be accessed through the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, and the military. So I could find out who was living when I was trying to track down um, my characters, Marie Dory and her children. I was trying to track down where they were at a certain time, and I could find them back in South Dakota with uh, with relatives, even though she was in the West. So it's stuff like that. But you know, who would have thought wow. there'd be cut beef records? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So wow. Okay. So then, one of the other things that I thought was so interesting was um, Carrie had two apparently quite long, uh, like a two-part memoir that was more documentary-ish. Yes. And, and you read all of it, I think. Yes. Yes, um, I did. And, and so she talks about her husband a lot in hers, but then you said that yes. he also wrote a memoir. And tell us, because I am appalled, tell us about how he mentions yes. his wife. So um, he outlived her. And Robert also outlived a second wife. And when he was 90, he wrote his own memoir called My 90 Years of Boyhood, which I thought was an intriguing title. Yeah. Um, and in it, I mean, after, yes, she, she had two volumes about really praising Robert for all the incredible things that he had done in the West. And in his memoir, he gives three sentences to Carrie. Three sentences. I was like, well, you are clueless, this guy. Um, and he also gave 26 pages to his second wife. And somebody said to me, well, maybe she was still alive, but she wasn't still alive. So it was just, who knows what was going on? Maybe it was immediacy or something. He could remember more about traveling with her than with Carrie. I don't know. But it just said something about the... Um, what didn't ring true in their relationship based yeah. on her memoir and how wonderful everything was versus, you know, I don't think he was mean spirited. I just think he was clueless. I don't think he got it yeah. um, that what she did for his career, those small things that, that many women do for their spouse's careers. You know, they maybe remember the names of people that are coming through the receiving line or they remember to send a birthday gift to some someone's daughter that you know has an impact on that business relationship and he just didn't get how critical she was to his story i think and and you know the three sentences were of course quite 
loving. He said, I can just hardly talk about her. It was like, right. <laughs> you can hardly talk about her, but, but you can talk about your second wife. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so you can it, tell what my attitude was. Yeah, it, I was just going to ask you, it did make me wonder like how you colored the fictional Robert, because we're talking about real people. So you can't make it any more different than the facts that you know exist. But right, reading between right. the lines, I'm just wondering, like, how did it color the way that you portrayed their relationship? Yes, well, I, I told the truth, but I told it slant. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, or and actually, my working title was "Between the Lines" that you just said. Um, so that was the working title. But I, um, so I, 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 I did actually use things that she had recorded in that memoir. For example, she um, talked about the um, she talked about the occasion when they had to leave town because they had gotten many friends to invest in properties um, in the north of Seattle area with the hope and belief, because Robert was involved, that the railroad was going to come there. And so um, he got the city fathers to condemn you know, land so that they could take it and say they needed it for the power plant or whatever. But in fact, they were buying it up with the hope that when the railroad came, the railroad have to buy that back from them and they were going to make a lot of money. Um, and so she, she comments about that kind of, um, kind of off to the side about, you know, they were, you know, in my version, she would have been trying to warn him about their friends and other people getting invested in this without the certainty of the railroad coming. But he was the kind of guy that just believed, you know, that he could make things happen because he had all these contacts. Um, and so when the railroad didn't come, it went to um, Tacoma and Seattle area instead. They had to get out of town in the dead of night, you know, hire somebody to take them on this boat, row them across the Puget Sound to catch a stage to get out of town. And she she mentions that as a really difficult time, but never goes on past that other than to say they spent the next nine years then in Boston, where again, he starts making money. He, he would make money and then lose a lot of money. And she doesn't talk about that very much. Um, and of course, the memoir had nothing about that in it because it came out. I mean, it had that in there, but like the last big um, blowout that he had where they had to mortgage the house that she had come to love. That's not in the memoir. That's just from research that I did about what happened after the memoir came out. Um, but I think that that, you know, I, I portrayed him as I think she might have seen him. Great disappointment, you know, that she wanted to support him in his efforts. And at the same time, she was more cautious, especially when friends were involved. Yeah. Um, and she knew she was going to end up having to support him because he would also get into this kind of melancholy states at times. And she would be the one that would bring him out of that. And wow. she does talk about that briefly when he had the mumps in Omaha, Nebraska, um, and she had to take care of him. And then when she got sick, he said, well, I need to go work on this book. So you know, have your mother or your sisters come out, you know, so he was just clueless. Um, and so I think it, I think the way I portrayed him was reflective of what we can interpret about behavior, you know, just generally. My, my little mental health background was slipping in there um, yeah. to see. You can say, yes, you can say some things, you know, oh, I adored my, I adored my Dell. Uh, and at the same time, he, um, he wasn't exactly uh, as supportive a spouse as one could have expected in reciprocal from his wife. Well, I'm glad this is not the kind of writing that I do because you are being much kinder to him than I think I would ever. <laughs> well, you know, I usually talk, I usually have a chance to speak with descendants. And that's one of the research things I do. If I can find a descendant to talk to them and listen to the family stories that have been carried down, because I think family stories are very powerful. Yeah. Um, and one, one of the books I wrote, there was a, you know, there were some discrepancies in the census records and I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't too concerned about that. Um, but one of the descendants told me that, oh no, she, 
you know, she, her husband died and she married a second time, someone with the same last name. And so there were two husbands and it was only because that descendant told me that, that I decided that I would um, pursue that and found out that, yes, that was true. And it changed the whole trajectory of the story. So with Carrie, I didn't, because they had no children um, and I wasn't able to contact like nieces or nephews or descendants of them. um, I I didn't have a a descendant um, access. And shortly before the book came out, um, I, I was contacted by a descendant of one of Robert's brothers. And, and he sounded quite, um, he had read another book. It was a nonfiction book um, that a historian had written about their literary life because both of them as writers. And he had sent some corrections basically about that. So I thought, Oh, he's going to just roll over and um, when he gets my book and, but he requested it. And I said, I'd be happy to send you a copy, which I did. Um, and I haven't heard back from him. So I suspect I may not hear back from him because he was quite, he, he, and I understand that he felt like he was the, um, you know, the keeper of the story of Robert and Carrie and what had happened, that family story. And so like, like Carrie would have wanted it to be, um, upstanding, you know, that Robert, because they did do it. They did contribute greatly to the West. And when Ken Burns um, here in the States did a um, PBS special on the West, it said that he used her memoir to help sort of provide a a, a picture of what was happening in the West. It was so well documented um, as a, as a, you know, a document of change in the West. Um, But I also um, was at a book signing in Powell's in Portland and afterwards, I, I did a presentation. Afterwards, a woman came up to me and she gave me her card. And her name was Carrie Strayhorn. It was spelled with just one R. Um, and she said she was a descendant from the, you know, from another line. And um, and so this descendant that I had uh, conversed with was it going to be in touch with her. But anyway, she said, you know what you said about how they'd make a lot of money and then he'd lose a lot of money and then he'd make some more money? She said, well, that's the story of our entire family histories. <laughs> so apparently I had captured something, wow. something of that's essence of that Strayhorn story. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting too, because, you know, you hear things about certain, certain kinds of family traits that get passed down through generations. And in mm-hmm. my mind, sometimes I think, how could that possibly be a family trait? But that's interesting that somebody would say yeah, that. It, yeah. And there is a great book a, a, a colleague of mine wrote called Bold Spirit, Helga Espy's Forgotten Walk Across Victoria, America. And it's wow. a story about a mother and a daughter who walked from Spokane to New York. And if they could um, do that, if they could earn their way across the country in seven months, they were going to win $10,000. Well, after they got back, the daughter changed her last name and then was separated from the family for 20 years. And I, in that footnote, as I read that book, I ended up wanting to know what happened to the daughter. So I wrote a book called The Daughter's Walk, which is about the daughter's perspective of what happened. But um, the reason I mentioned that book for, um, and the author was, um, my mind just went blank, Hunt. Um, the last name was Hunt and my mind is just blank. But anyway, that. Um, in her book, Bold Spirit, she includes at the end a series of research um, books that have been done about family stories and the silencing of stories. Um, because after they got back, the mother was never allowed, her husband did not want her to ever, ever, ever talk about this journey that they'd made. Um, and none of the family ever did until after almost everybody was dead. And then the, um, a sister-in-law had a scrapbook about it. But um, but the the research suggests that there are sort of um, DNA kinds of things that come through families that are huh. are these traits that they're sort of listed as interesting um, features of a person's personality or the way the family sort of views certain things. Um, and it's really an interesting read. So and it's Linda Hunt. I got to remember her first name. So she's the author of that book. And the bibliography, you know, the back section about. Um, how traits are transferred um, is really worth the, is the story is phenomenal and, and beautifully written. And it's also 
include some great reference material. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That does sound yeah. really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Now you're quite well known for being somebody who does meticulous research. So um, there's a lot of people who are listening who do research of various kinds for fiction. Obviously, uh, we think about it as being um, mostly for historical fiction, but then also, of course, for nonfiction, you have to do research. But I was just thinking, um, all of your books, I mean, basing your main character on a real life historical figure, that <laughs> requires not only research, but just such a sense of like really having to, <clears throat> um, like on the one hand, have the facts, but on the other hand, be reading between the lines and try to imagine what the story probably is. So is this like a learned thing for you or is it like a personality trait that you just really like, uh, you know, digging into the nitty gritty things? <laughs> Yes, I'm like, you know what I said, I'm the, um, I'm the CSI, you know, fiction, I'd like to <laughs> go, go in there, and I know it sits off the air now, but you know, I, th- I always thought about that as CSI. Yeah. Um, I, I think that is a trait, I, I have, um, you know, my background was in mental health, and, and I remember when I was getting my graduate degree, and being at a party, and, and someone said, oh, you're, you're a therapist, are you analyzing me right now? And I said, no, I'm not paying it. I'm just seeing you as you. Um, but if you were to come and be a, you know, my, my patient or my client, I would, I would want to know more about you. I'd want to know all these, you know, interesting things about you because that will help us work together about what it is that you're troubled by. Um, and so it, even in therapy, I would use odd things like, um, photographs you know i would ask somebody to take a polaroid and go out and take 10 pictures of whatever they wanted and then bring that back and then we'd talk about were there any patterns here or what did they see in those pictures Um, and to this day when i look at photographs i um, and my grandmother was a photographer so maybe this is the dna thing Um, she had her own studio but i i look at you know people's positions in in the picture you know, where are they standing? How close are they and how far apart? Um, you know, those kinds of things that really help me know. And, and that was true with, with Carrie's story too, because there were photographs of them that I could see them together and, um, and just other people in the picture. So um, let's see, what did you ask me? <laughs> where did I go with that? The, the meticulous detail of it was a personality trait? Or? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I have to really worry, not worry, I have to caution myself about that because I love the research so much. I love the little tidbits of things. Um, and it's like, it's like having knowledge for no reason at all. You know, just, <laughs> oh, isn't that interesting? You know, yeah. and I'm always reading something and saying to my husband, listen to this, you know, and, you know, it'll go away and won't be in my brain um, ever after. But, yeah. but, you know, just odd things that strike me. Um, so when I'm researching a particular thing, I've, I've spoken to, I've been asked to speak to both genealogy groups and historical groups wow. and, and, you know, give them the caveat that I'm not a, I'm not a genealogist, even though I do genealogy of my characters and I'm not a historian, even though I, the, the history in my books can be trusted. You know, that to me, is like the spine of the story. So I don't mess around with changing, you know, what year the Civil War started or anything like that. Um, yeah. And so people who like history can read it for the history. But I, but I don't, like with genealogy, I don't go back to the seventh generation. I just get enough information to fill out my character and to and have that lead me to some interesting aspect of their life that maybe I wouldn't have discovered otherwise. Yeah. But I think historians and genealogists are like me in that they like the stories. That's what they're interested in too. They don't want to just know the date that their great grandmother got married. They want to know where it was and what was going on then and why were they there? And and those are all my questions too. So yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The week I think it is a go ahead. 
No, go ahead. I, I was just going to say the week before we moved to Sweden, um, I uh, blah, 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 insert a little story. And, um, and somebody showed me this picture and said, oh, these are your relatives from Sweden. And I'm like, what? Wait, how come nobody in my family ever tells me anything? <laughs> I have a picture. Yeah. I took a picture with my phone of the front and back of this photograph from 1910 or 1916 or something. And that's all I have. And I'm like, I don't even know how to begin, but at least I'm in the right country to find out. Yeah, you're in the right country. Yeah. yeah. Well, you go to some genealogy. There are genealogy groups all over the world. So you could just check in with the Swedish, your local historical society and local. Um, and then you, you know, then you'd explore who was it that gave you the picture and how did, you know, can you contact them to find out how they happen to have it and what makes them think that they're your relatives. And so then you get to do your interview thing that you do so well. So oh, it's, yeah. um, you know, it's just, yeah. Yeah. All right. So now it's, see. It is a great. Go ahead. It's, it's a, just a great joy. It's a great joy. It's part of the, part of the delight of having done this now for 25 years or whatever. And, and I feel like I sort of stumbled into this genre in some ways because I didn't, I didn't, um, I, I wasn't able to write the biography that I wanted. And then I ended up writing a novel instead. And so I feel like I stumbled into this just fascinating um, wilderness, really, of historical women um, whose stories are not, uh, you know, who, who have little research about them often. Um, and I call it reflected history to some extent because their lives are reflected in what I can find out about the men in their life. Um, and right. so that's, you know, I have to find, I have to spend time with their, the men in their lives in order to really try to shape who they were and why does that, why is that story speaking to me? Virginia yeah. Woolf said um, one time and I had read that women's history must be invented, both uncovered and made up. So I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. Wow. yeah. So that gives me, you know, that I don't feel so, you know, I used to feel somewhat apologetic to the historians in my life um, because I was writing fiction. But yeah. um, Frederick, Frederick Beekner, who is a theologian, but he's also writes fiction and nonfiction. He said that fiction isn't true the way a, a photograph is true, which captures a moment in time. But fiction is true the way a portrait is true, which captures the essence of a character over time. And so I thought, you know what? Fiction is an important element of the human condition, you know, the imagination, yeah. the storytelling, um, and finding ways to, to engage people in their own stories, which is part of why I think I, I've had such a great joy in writing these stories because people will read them and because I use the real names, I often find other people who say, oh, that, that was, I think that was my great-great-grandmother. Or that, that neighbor you mentioned, I rem my mother, you know, used to tell me about whatever. So, um, so there's a connection that's personal for a lot of people who read the books. Um, but it's also, I hope, um, a, a little inspirational that your story is worth writing down. Yeah. Um, even if you think you didn't do anything extraordinary. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's interesting because it like Carrie, I don't have children, so I don't have anyone to give the story to, but then it's like, Oh, but there might be other people, you know, nephews and nieces who might be interested. Exactly. Or their children. exactly. Ah. Yeah. Well, the other piece is that if I, I, when I start writing, I think I'm writing about this woman, you know, this character, and I am, but when I finish the book, I always sort of sit back and go, oh, that's why I was supposed to write this story. Um, so I always discover things about myself that I wouldn't ever have discovered if I hadn't written the book. And I think that's also true for anybody who does a family story or um, I had a, a woman a number of years ago from Atlanta who... Um, said she had this great story about this really interesting woman. It happened to be a woman that um, they had met because they had sold their Cadillac and left their checkbook in the Cadillac. <laughs> and the new owner of the Cadillac was, a, was a, a black woman, and the woman who was writing to me was white. 
and she found the checkbook and contacted them. And so they got made the exchange and then they became friends and the woman became friends with their family and they had many years together. And she was just a fascinating woman. And, and so this woman from Atlanta was saying to me, I think you should write her story. She said, I've interviewed her. I have tapes, you know, you should write her story. And I said, no, you should write her story because you're the keeper of it. You know, you're the one. So, and I said, I'll help you. I'll walk through this. And I hesitate to say this because I get a lot of requests. Just help me write this story. Um, but I did. And she, um, so she finished it. She had lots of photographs. Her, the, the woman's children were really pleased with it and so on. And so she got back to me and she said, but I don't feel finished. And I said, no, because you told her story, but you didn't tell us why that story touched you. How, you know, why did that story impact your life. You told her story, which is a great kind of like a documentary, you know, or, um, but we don't, you're not in it. And I want you to be in the next version of the story. So she was going to go back and work on that. So, um, so yeah, I think that people will discover things about themselves if they will write down their family story. Yeah. Well, since you can't really uh, give time to a hundred people who might email you and ask you for help, what are what are some um, tips or ideas or suggestions that you might have for somebody who's listening, thinking, "Yeah, I, I either have this other story of a of a true person that I'm interested in writing, or my family story." Like, what are some of the things that you think people should should start with, or how do uh, how how do you give advice to people who are asking you? So I have a practice. These are some of the practices I can share about. Um, and, and for me, the most important one um, is like if a, if a particular incident comes up or I think, oh, that might make an interesting story. So my, um, my first plan of attack is um, to write, I mean, while I'm researching to see how much material I might be able to get or whatever, um, is to do something that might my first um, editor, my first fiction editor suggested that I read a book called um, Structuring Your Novel by um, Robert Meredith and John Fitzgerald. And it, it was published in like 1987. It's just a classic. It's still in print. Um, and, and these authors analyzed four great novels and identify why they were great. What was it that made them you know, Madame Bovary, From Here to Eternity, you know. So um, anyway, the one of the practices they recommend that I have done now for every book um, that I've ever written is to answer three questions. And the first question is, um, what's my intention? Which is like, I call that the elevator. You know, you get on the elevator and somebody says, oh, you're a writer, what are you working on? You've got one floor, you know, to tell them. So it's the one single sentence. You know, so for Carrie, it was, um, it's a story about a woman and her husband who traveled the West uh, promoting the railroad. Um, the second um, question is, what's my attitude towards this story? And the corollary to that is, what do I feel deeply about? Because fiction is about moving our hearts. I mean, that's, that's why we read fiction. Yeah. Um, and whether it's, you know, pounding because we're terrorized or it's warmed because we, you know, we discover a kind of, you know, poignancy and, and or a deep and profound, you know, um, abiding love of some kind. Yeah. Um, but what do I feel deeply about, you know? And I felt with, um, with Carrie's story, um, I felt deeply that um, she was marginalized despite all the benefits that she had, that her decision to sort of, look at the happy lane and support Robert in some ways marginalized who she really was. Um, and then the third question is how do I hope a reader would be changed? Um, but the, that's the corollary. The other one is what's my purpose in writing? That's the third question. And then how do I hope a reader would be changed? And another thing they had said is that you could also answer that question by asking, um, by saying to yourself, I'm trying to prove that, you know, not like a scientific proof, but, you know, in, in terms of a literary sense, I'm going to, all the scenes are going to be moving towards my effort to prove that, you know, life is an adventure or, you know, I'm going to prove that by 
caring for by by relieving the suffering of others, we help relieve our own, you know, or just things like that. So yeah. um, I might take many pages to answer those three questions. Um, but before I start writing, I get it down to one sentence each. Wow. And then I print that out in tiny little font. <laughs> and I put that on top of my computer. So that when I and, you know, and then I research and do a bunch of other stuff. And then I, you know, then I start to write. And so when I get lost halfway through, or I start, I call them the harpies, start saying, this is the worst idea you've ever had. And who told you you could write this? Yeah. That I can look back up there and go, okay, this is what this story is about. This is why I cared about writing it. Um, and this is how I hope a reader will feel at the end of this. And then that keeps me from, you know, going off on my little rabbit trails of, oh, I better look up. What kind of crayon was available from Crayola in 1910 or whatever? <laughs> yeah. um, so th that just, it just helps me keep going. I think Anne Lamott was the one who said that, you know, writing is like, um, I think it was Anne Lamott, but it was like walking a path with a flashlight at night. You can only see what's right in front of you, but you can make the whole path that way. Um, yeah. And so those three sentences help me stay on the path, even though I don't know what's going to happen. And it's, and it's frightening out there to, to live in that uncertainty, which is why I think we go off on rabbit trails and we let ourselves be distracted and say, well, you know, maybe I better go clean the grout out in the tile in my, you know, bathroom or something yeah. <laughs> rather than stay in here and finish this. So, um, because living with uncertainty is, produces anxiety. So, yeah. I, and, and a novelist, lives with uncertainty. You don't know how it's going to be. And, and what I've discovered is that when I do those, that practice, um, before I start writing, I will, at the end, when I finish the first draft, I will ask myself the same three questions. And very often they're different. The answers are different because oh. the story has taken me someplace where I didn't realize I was going to go. Yeah. Um, I might have thought I was going to finish it over here at this particular time or in this particular way. But then I, I, I don't because the story went somewhere else and that was okay. You know, so yeah. yeah. Ivan Doeg, who's, um, who is a national book award writer. He writes, um, he's deceased now, but he wrote a number of books that set in Montana and other places. But I read an interview with him. Um, and he said that the best part about writing for him was in revisions. And I thought, because he said, that's when you find out what the story is really about. And I remember thinking, well, how could you write a whole book and not know what it was about until you finished it? <laughs> but once I started writing, I knew what he was saying then, that, yeah, that's what, that's what the story was trying to tell me. So, yeah. Well, and it occurs to so me. That's I'm, one of my. Yeah. This whole idea of, um, of the anxiety being one of the reasons why you um, have to get up and, and I'll finish this scene later or, oh, I don't have time to write today. I'll write tomorrow. I'm thinking, wow, that, that's probably a huge part of it for me. And I maybe didn't realize it, but I'm thinking having even an idea of what the answers are to those questions as you go along, it seems like that would like put some, some um, fencing around that anxiety, keep it in a corral so that yes, it is totally yes, overwhelming. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, it is. It, it provides some border um, um, and fencing. I like the fencing idea. Yeah. So um, because I, then you then you I, it's a way for me to keep myself from going off too far, which yeah. is part of the anxiety, too, um, is, oh, OK, I, I'm just going to do this now. I mean, other things that I do to keep that because I when I start writing, I think about it as a horse race. I know that sounds really odd, but um, it's like you get them out of the chute and the goal is to get across the finish line. And so anything that will, you know, be a little barrier to that in the first draft. Um, so I, I will, for example, um, instead of spending any time looking at baby names, books, you know, to find names for characters who aren't necessarily the real people. Um, this is an aside, but I love it when people can't tell whether I've written about a person who actually lived or made somebody up totally because I needed to, you know, have a friend or something and I couldn't find the name of that friend or something. Yeah. Um, and so when I'm doing that, 
I could spend lots of time looking at the names of babies and what they mean and blah, blah, blah. You know, so um, I just give everybody who I don't know yet, uh, they're John and Mary, you know, in my draft. They're just Mary so I can keep going. So because I, I got this race to finish. Um, right. Or I get to a place where I, um, I need to describe a room, for example, like how this person's going to move in the room. And, um, and, and it's 1870 and it's a stage stop. You know, I could spend a lot of time and I have a lot of books about stages and stage coaches and all that sort of stuff. I could spend lots of time living there, you know, with the, the bad green lumber and the holes between the boards and all that sort of stuff. But I'll just say, just, you know, describe this later. Um, and it may not even be that important later, but if I spend too much time hanging out there in that stage stop, I will not get to the finish line. Um, right. So it's another way of keeping myself going. Um, and then somebody, I used to uh, always finish um, at the end of a day, I would wait until I'd finished like a chapter or I'd finished a whole section, a whole scene. And, um, and now I, I stop in the middle of a sentence for when I end the day of writing. Um, because then I know I always have somewhere to go in the morning yeah. when I come back in there. And that's really, that's really has cut down on my, again, anxiety of, okay, I finished this chapter. Now, where is it going to go? Um, I used to read my chapters, finished chapters to my husband and he would sit behind me. I read off the computer. He would sit behind me. And at the end of it, cause I didn't want to watch him if he fell asleep or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Um, but when I was done, I would turn around and if he was moved, you know, if he was touched by something I had written because he's like this hopeless romantic. So, um, I think, okay, I got the emotional connection I wanted, but then if he'd say, oh, I knew she was going to do that. That was to be like the kiss of death, you know, so I have to go back and rework that section. Um, but one time I finished the chapter and it was, I think it ended with, you know, something about Elizabeth went to the top of the hill and what she saw on the other side, she knew was going to change everything. And so I, I read that to him and he said, what did she see? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to wait until tomorrow and I'll figure something out tomorrow. So, um, but I think that those ways of um, not having, not having the sense of, oh, it's over. This part's over. I don't know where to go now. Yeah, um, is really important in keeping the story going. So finding tricks like that um, that yeah. I've used through the years um, have been helpful to keep going. Oh, that's good. So. That's good. I like it. And I, I'll just throw something else out there for just in case anybody else uh, has had my experience. So I, I can't remember when I've been um, writing since the, I mean, writing and being uh, a participant in writers groups and going to writers conferences since the late 1990s. So um, a lot of years of information and advice and, and um, trial yes. and error. So I remember uh, the first two or three times that I tried that advice of stop in the middle of a sentence. And I thought I was going to scream bloody murder when the next day I could not remember what I was going to say. And I was so frustrated. So um, a couple of months ago, I was like, well, I kind of want to try something like that, though, where I'm not stopping at the end and tomorrow I'm going to have to figure out some new thing that I don't even right. know. So instead of stopping in the middle of a sentence, I stopped at the end of a sentence and then wrote three or four lines about the part that I knew that was going to happen next. So I didn't, I didn't finish the scene, but I wrote exactly. down what yeah. was going to happen. And then the next day I was like, oh, this is great. Like, I don't even have to think. I just start yes. writing. Yes, that is great. That's a great um, tip. And, um, and the, I, I would just ex extend that a little bit because one of the things that I do in the morning before I start writing each day, you know, I'll finish that sentence. But even before I finish that sentence, I'll make some notes about where I think the next scene's going to be. And, and they're in pencil, you know, and I don't do the dialogue or anything. It's just like, you know, um, Carrie's going to encounter the, the woman with the twins, you know, and, you know, just some just brief notes about that is exactly yeah. what you're what you do at the end of the day. That's perfect. Yeah, I think that's a great those are just starters for us. So yeah. we don't have that anxiety again about what, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Yeah. So, yeah. And I love Another the thing I found. Uh, oh, yeah. Go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to no, say, I love, love that, that everybody's, <laughs> everybody's brain uh, works, uh, je- I mean, you know, mostly the same in a biological sense, but, but you know, we yeah. think slightly differently. So I love whenever um, people share ideas <laughs> and then somebody like takes those ideas and comes up with a new idea that works better for them and how they think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, an- so another thing that I find myself having to do um, that has been helpful is um, I these negative voices that sit behind us that say things, you know, halfway through, like, this is the stupidest idea, or nobody's going to read that, you know, or, you know, one of my, one of my little harpies that says, you know, what you just wrote, no one will give up cleaning their toilets in order to read that, you know, it's just oh. really negative stuff. Um, and so I have this, um, you know, I actually do a little workshop called the seven stories that hold us back and how we can transform them. And it's sort of like the seven different kinds of harpy messages that come in and, and finding ways to speak back. But one of the biggest ones is that we, we hear those things in our head because we don't value our own work, you know, or we've said, um, well, cause I'm not making it, I'm not making any money. This is just a waste of my time. You know, why should I even bother? You know, 50,000 books, you know, or now hundreds of thousands of books a year are published or self-published. And, and it's really a diminishing of the value of our own work um, yeah. that makes that happen. Well, so this is so fun. As usual, I have more questions for you, but we've kind of run out of time. So why don't we talk for just one more minute about uh, your new book? Where can people find everything she didn't say and your other books? What's the easiest way to to follow you or to find you and your books? Well, um, I'm on I'm on Amazon. I'm available in most independent bookstores, which I really love. Um, I, they they helped my career enormously. Um, and on I'm on Facebook, um, Jane Kirkpatrick, um, the author, and so you can visit me there. And uh, my website is jkbooks.com. Um, believe it or not, I've had a website since the '90s, but Jane Kirkpatrick was already taken. So, uh, so it's jkbooks.com. I know who would have thought, um, right. so, and, um, and if you go to my website, um, and you click on any of the covers, there's a whole uh, page, additional information, mostly historical about research or some other tidbit with each book. And then you can also sign up for my story sparks newsletter, which comes out once a month. And I, which is also some writing information, but it's also, um, I call it a little inspirational sort of, you know, an opportunity to sort of sit back and think about something that might be encouraging in your life. So it's just a little essay format. Nice. Jane, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been so interesting and I love all of your writing tips. Well, thank you. It's been fun to, fun to talk with you across the miles like this. So across the sea. So thank, and thanks for your tip too. I like that doing, um, a wrap up at the end of each day about what you're going to do the next day. Great idea. Yeah. Well, it's always fun to share tips, isn't it? (laughs) Yep, it is. All right. Great. Thanks again. Have an excellent day. And, uh, you know, we'll hear more about you later. All right. Thanks so much for having me be part of your blog. Thanks. Bye-bye.